0: The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order.
1: Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran.
0: Well, it's been a busy week. House leaders gaveled into their first lame duck session in 26 years unveiled their budget proposal for the fiscal year that started more than four months ago. Governor Baker tapped another nominee for the state's highest court and tightened coronavirus orders on gatherings, mask wearing, a new curfew. And, and I, I can't help but feel I'm missing something else. Uh, I'm, I'm joined by Katie Lannan, Chris Lisinski, and Matt Murphy of the Statehouse News Service. Um, g- guys, what am I forgetting there?
2: Alex Cora. You're
0: forgetting the Alex Cora news. Right. And oh, besides Alex Cora, there was a bunch of stuff on Tuesday, um, (laughs) election day. We've got a lot to tackle. And so we are convening another reporter's roundtable to analyze the week that was and look ahead to some busy days in the weeks to come. Now, it occurs to me, folks, those new executive orders from Governor Baker could have quite an impact today or heading into the weekend. Um, They went into effect uh, at the start of Friday. Everyone's got their eyes glued to the TV as we get closer to knowing who will be our president-elect. And whenever we do know, some folks will be raising a glass in victory, others shedding tears in their beers, but They've got to stock up because starting today, package stores and bars have got to stop serving you alcohol by 9:30 p.m. Just think how sad everyone would be if we we learn the results after 9:30 and it's too late to stock up.
1: Well, I say, you know, Sam, stock up early. I just, uh, I actually just got done writing that uh, maybe it's a good thing that we're all sitting at home glued to our televisions watching uh, native Dorchester son John King. And Groton's own Steve Kornacki play with their magic walls and show us all the numbers. And no one's thinking about leaving their homes to go out and uh, party tonight or this weekend. So uh, I think maybe the governor caught a break this week.
2: (laughs) The other thing, too, is, I mean, with the election having stretched on for for days now, chances are you did your... uh, you're stocking up for whatever sort of celebratory or sorrow drowning provisions you probably did way back before polls even closed on Tuesday, as far back as that sounds at this point.
0: It does sound like a long time ago. I I think you pointed out before we started taping, Katie, that it it really does still feel like Tuesday as we sit here on Friday. (laughs) It does,
1: Um, I know know I'm gonna pop a bottle of champagne just to celebrate that this week is over. (laughs)
0: Now, we might not know yet what the country's choice is for president, um, but we did find out, I guess, what Governor Baker's preference was Uh, back on Election Day. He disclosed to us that he had no preference uh, for president, blanking his ballot as as he did in 2016. Um, But as we look at what results came in that night on state level issues, um, Matt, Let's start with you. You wrote about the results of the two ballot questions. Uh, Question one, the so-called right to repair ballot initiative, and whether or not to have ranked choice voting in Massachusetts, uh, which we dove into a couple of weeks ago here on The Takeout. Um, Not as much of a surprise on question one, but maybe lead us off talking about what happened with question two, Matt.
1: Well, question two, the ranked choice uh, voting question, this would have uh, allowed, uh, starting in 2022 for statewide elections, voters to uh, rank their ballots in uh, races where there are more than two candidates based on their uh, top preference, second preference, third preference. And uh, it would require that the eventual winner of any of these races get a majority of the votes. If not, uh, the lowest finishing candidate would get knocked off the ballot and their uh, votes uh, reapportioned based on their supporters second choices and so on and so on until uh, there was a majority winner now uh, This did uh, fail. It was a uh, much closer than ballot question one It, uh, you know, it, it was one of those questions that uh, Looked and felt like it had a lot of support uh, going into election day. I mean You couldn't uh, throw a rock around Beacon Hill without hitting a politician that had endorsed it. Uh, It was everyone from Deval Patrick and Bill Weld, uh, bipartisan former governors, to uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, both US senators, everyone that is except for Governor Charlie Baker, who in the waning days of the election voiced his and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito's opposition to this. And it's hard to know exactly why voters uh, said no to this. Uh, On paper, I think to a lot of people, it sounded like a good idea. Uh, Sure, you know, you should win, uh, or if you're going to represent a district or or a state, uh, the majority of the people uh, should be behind you. Uh, But even Secretary Galvin, the day after, when he was asked to surmise why this didn't gain uh, the traction it needed to pass, he said it just felt a bit too complicated to people. And I think people may have defaulted to I'm not so sure about this, so I'm not gonna change something that I know uh, and I'm comfortable with.
0: Yeah, and Matt, you know, I I have takeout on my mind a lot. And what jumped to mind for me was, you're looking at a takeout menu and you see something that's got a bunch of ingredients in it that you don't really know what they are, and you pass on that and you just go with what you know. Um, You know, and that... (laughs) Yeah, especially...
1: Especially with ballot questions, I think people, when they start reading the language, if they're not quite comfortable with it, it's easier to just check the no box than to sign up for a big change if you feel like you don't know what the consequences are going to be. The other notable thing with this question was actually with both of these questions was that in each case, the side that spent the least amount of money actually prevailed and it was uh, most obvious in in question two where the proponents fueled by a lot of outside money money coming in from outside of massachusetts uh big donors like katherine murdoch like the son of george soros uh and, and other uh, nonprofits from houston and and uh, uh big wealthy donors they raised and spent uh close to 10 million dollars to try and pass this in massachusetts The opposition, which was sort of fragmented, not really organized, didn't even have a committee until very late stages of this campaign, Uh, they raised uh, less than, I believe, $4,000. There was very little organized opposition to this, Uh, which is where I think you come back to this idea that voters uh, just couldn't get comfortable with the idea of this change.
0: It worked out to, I I believe, a statement from Paul Craney said this week, it worked out to about less than a penny per vote uh, from the no on two side.
1: Yeah, and I I, I think if you were to tell the uh, no on one people, uh, that they they'd wish or, or they'd trade places because they spent uh, well over you know into the 25 million plus range uh, on their effort to defeat question one and, and lost by a, a significant three to one margin so uh, they spent considerably more per vote uh, and lost
0: now Katie on election night you were covering some of the uh uh, federal races here in Massachusetts and no huge surprises there with incumbents coasting the reelection, that sort of thing. Um, what, what stuck out to you the most though?
2: Well, I think like you, you said, Sam, I mean, this is another year, um, or another category rather where, where voters really weren't looking for change. You know, it seems that they're, they're happy with the, the delegation as it is. Um, you know, with the the new existi- with the new addition, it looks like of a uh, representative elect, Jake Auchincloss, in the uh, in the fourth district. But you know, one thing that's I think worth noting too is that there's some some folks in the in the mass delegation who have pretty prominent roles. You know, from Catherine Clark, who's going to be running for assistant speaker. Um, Ed Markey I think his primary win against Joe Kennedy was really kind of made him more of a a central figure got caught put some more eyes on the longtime lawmaker and I think it's going to be interesting to see kind of what comes of that kind of attention to and kind of powerful role of some of the Massachusetts delegation we of course have powerful chairman in, uh, Richie Neal and McGovern. And, you know, I think depending on who the president (laughs) ends up being, um, (laughs) that'll be interesting to watch those dynamics and you know, everyone, a lot of those races were, were pretty big margins. So people of Massachusetts seem to be overall pretty happy with the status quo there. Um, we didn't see a lot of the Republican challengers really make make much of a dent in those support levels, or the the third party challengers in the races where, where that was the case.
0: Sure, um, yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned the Republicans not really making uh, much headway in those congressional races. Uh, Chris Lasinski, you were covering the state level legislative races. Yeah, and un, un, un unmute yourself there, Chris. It's your turn. Um, Uh, The the state level legislative races. And uh, while some had thought that uh, President Trump being at the top of the ballot might lead to significant loss of ground for Republicans in the House or Senate, at the end of the day, things are, as Katie was saying, kind of status quo,
3: yeah, all things considered, it's fairly status quo. Uh, if you look at just the election night results, setting aside all of these special elections we had earlier this year, the 200-seat Massachusetts legislature only shifted two seats further toward Democrats' favor. So this is this is a pickup. This is padding their supermajorities even more. But it's not the kind of pickup some had been expecting, given the national currents. You know, in 2018, two years ago, in a midterm election without a president at the top of the ticket, Democrats picked up three seats in the legislature in that election. So uh, altogether, somewhat of a status quo result. If you factor in those special elections we saw earlier this year, it is more significant at a a five-seat swing. Um, And it's worth noting that we're heading into the next session with only three Republicans in the state Senate, which I think is the, the fewest that they've tied for the fewest they've had in that chamber, at least in the past five decades if not longer
0: yeah it's it's remarkable actually since since you bring that up to think about the fact that a republican was president of the senate in 1959 which really isn't all that long ago and and now there's three republicans left in the upper chamber um so we've got what is it 19 uh new members coming in for the first time in january Yep, it'll be
3: 19 new members, and that includes the, I think it's 15 who won races for open house seats, where the incumbent lawmaker is not seeking another term, and another four who disposed of incumbents two in the primary, two in the general. Once again, we've been seeing this for, for cycles and cycles, but being an incumbent on Beacon Hill is is really just a massive advantage that uh, is a pretty clear path to some some job stability for years to come.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, what what are some of the notable uh, the notable flips or uh, the few defeats that we saw? Uh, it, actually, let me ask you first have Have they resolved the uh, Petrolotti seat yet out in Chicopee or Ludlow? Not yet. Last we
3: heard, the the Democratic candidate, Jake Oliveira, was up by about 134 votes, uh, told me that he's pretty confident that he will stay in the lead even as the last few ballots get counted and even if this does go to a recount. uh, At the time of our recording on Friday afternoon, it's not 100% clear if the Republican in that race, Chip Harrington, is going to seek a recount. He'd been hinting at that earlier in the week, but we're going to have to keep our eyes out later this afternoon to see if uh, he does indeed pull the trigger on having all the ballots retabulated there. What
1: you know, happened- in a, a
3: state rep race, uh, 130 ballots is, you know, uh, it's a small margin, but it it, it means uh, more than it might in a congressional race when you've got a bigger pool that you're recounting. So it, it's, it's not entirely clear if a recount could flip this, but it, it is at least in
0: play at this point. Time. Sure. N- not, not to stick on that one too long, but what, what happened in Belchertown?
3: Yeah, I I don't know it too well myself. Uh, from <laughs> what we've heard from the candidates, it sounds like there was a, a transposition error reporting the results on election night to the, the official sources online that basically ended up in some kind of, of math glitch where Harrington was listed in the lead with um, enough precincts reporting that he thought he was the winner, uh, came back the next day after that error had been corrected and it flipped the other way and listed Oliveira as the winner, which is where it still stands today. So one of the, really, I think one of the few instances we saw here in Massachusetts of some uncertainty and, and sort of uh, rockiness during this, this unprecedented election cycle. Um, really seems to be one of the only, only issues we had at the state level here.
0: Sure. Uh, now, the Republicans losing the longtime Poirier seat in uh, North Attleboro um, and Will Crocker uh, defeated in the general election by Democrat Kip Diggs, a former pro-boxer.
3: Yeah, 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 that's right. So those were the two House seat pickups. Uh, the Republicans did snatch back a seat in the House, though, the one that has been vacant since May last held by Democrat John Velas who's now a member of the Senate. Uh, it's it kind of an instance of musical chairs out there where Republican Don Hummison left the Senate to become Westfield's mayor. John Velas won the special Senate election in May for Hummison's seat. That seat stayed vacant, and now in the general, Republicans took it back. So uh, after a shuffle, um, you know, they took that back, but ended up losing two in the House for a, for a net loss. And they lost one in the, in the Senate, as we mentioned earlier, to shrink what used to be a minority crescent into a minority
0: triangle, I guess. Um, I I guess, or I think the term constellation has been used before, and I I guess a constellation can have only three stars. Um, uh, Now, you mentioned the Vela seat that had been vacant since May um, hadn't been filled, um, and those folks out there had not had representation in the House uh, low those many months. That calls to mind the central Massachusetts seat on the governor's council, And we'll talk in a moment about the Supreme Judicial Court uh, nominees, one of the first hearings coming up next week on Thursday for uh, the governor's nominee to be chief of the highest court, Kim Budd. Uh, But with all that activity around the SJC kicking off right now in 2020, uh, the people of Central Mass uh, haven't had an elected representative on that panel that vets and votes on judicial candidates. Um, so the the fellow who won that seat in the general election back on Tuesday, Democrat Paul DiPaolo, um, was tweeting about that. And I'll be kind of curious if he gets involved at all in the conversation with his um, future colleagues. But uh, one other rep race that was particularly interesting, and we're going to go over to Katie. Um, Sally, not sure how to pronounce her last name, actually, I'm sorry, K- Karen's, Um, won back a seat that she had retired from back in the 90s and she's taking over from the fellow who took over for her Ted Spiliotis who would have been the dean of the house the longest serving member had he stuck around for another term Um, Katie I was reading about uh, representative elect again elect uh (laughs) Karens, in, um, in your story today about the status of gender equity in the makeup of the legislature. And we're at yet another high watermark, you reported.
2: Yeah, uh, another high point, um, as was the case at the start of this cycle, when women made up um, about 29% of the legislature, that's um, set to Kick up to thirty-one percent in the in the new term in January. Um, still a long way to go for you know gender parity in the in Beacon on Beacon Hill. In that regard, in the legislature, um, women of course make up about a, over fifty-one percent of the population in Massachusetts. So it's not a fully representative legislature, but there are there are gains being made there. Um, with seven new. Uh, new women poised to join the house um, and all 12 incumbent uh, female senators reelected.
0: Yeah, and the, the figure that really stuck out to me was there have been what 20,000 men, which is the size of a large town in Massachusetts have have served in the legislature since, I, I guess since the constitution was adopted in, in the 1780s. And, right. and how, how, how many women?
2: Um, 213 so far, um, based on the, 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 including the special election winners from this year. So I guess, um, that'll, that'll take up a little bit more, but it's still, you know, <laughs> we're going to be a, a, about, well, I'm not going to try and do math on my, in my head on a Friday <laughs> afternoon, but it's, it's a Especially small, not a, this Friday, <laughs> a small percentage, um, compared to the number of men historically. And it's really interesting when you think about it, because out of that two hundred and 13, that's 50 sub 50 something of those are in there now. You know, about a quarter of that number are current legislators, um, which really I think kind of kind of puts into perspective how, how long a path it's been to get to this number. Um, you know, the the first female state senator was elected in 1937. Um, and now they're on the, the third female Senate president.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. And your story also pointed out currently treasurer, attorney general, auditor, lieutenant governor, um, as as far as women in in higher ranking roles of government. Let's take a look at SJC while we've got you, Katie. Um, uh, introduce us a little bit to the latest pick that came on a very convenient day. Um, election day there was nothing else happening that day <laughs>
2: um well it kind of worked out well cuz there wasn't much else going on in the afternoon when uh, the governor did have that press conference all the action was uh was later that evening i guess but yeah the governor announced his his second recent nominee after he uh, last month uh nominated Current Judge Kimberly Budd to be the Chief Justice of the SJC. Um, his new nominee is Appeals Court Judge Delila Wentland, who um, comes from a really interesting background. Uh, she has mechanical engineering experience, uh, built a robot at MIT, as I'm sure you know. All of our listeners and myself have also done. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm still working on mine.
2: Uh, Hey, if you're not using the the pandemic stay at home time to to build a robot, what are you doing? Uh, Other than just trying to get through it. But she would be the the first Latina justice uh, on the high court. She um, is the child of Colombian immigrants, born in New Orleans, and really just kind of offered an interesting perspective when she was publicly introduced this week as the nominee, talking about how having you know started in engineering and in that role you follow the data not really knowing what it'll lead and talking about how for her that was kind of an obvious transition into the law where you're you're often in the same situation especially in a high stakes legal question you don't necessarily know where you're going and you just have to follow the the facts as they exist so i'm you know it'll be interesting to hear more from her about her her view on the law and her judicial philosophy um when she does eventually come before the governor's council
0: sure um and it's also interesting in talking with john keller on the takeout last week um I, i i asked him whether the choice of kim budd to be chief justice of the court took some of the pressure off of baker Uh, in some of those public calls to pick a more diverse candidate or or, or pick a, a woman for the court. And Keller pointed out that there's... There's never a lack of pressure because without pressure, things don't change. And uh, and so then we, we we see this nominee this week. Um, and you mentioned hearings starting soon. Next Thursday, Kim Budd uh, down in the Great Hall. They've got all the red carpet rolled out down there already. Very grand looking. Um, and also next week, we're finally getting around. Hey, Matt Murphy, uh, we're finally getting around to Budget Week, which normally would have happened back in April. A few things have happened in between. Uh, now we find ourselves with a a very different sort of budget week on the horizon starting Tuesday morning. Uh, what's the top line, Matt, on that House budget?
1: The top line on that House budget is just over $46 billion. Uh, this is the new spending plan that uh, House Ways and Means Chairman Aaron Michalowicz and uh, leadership in the House, Speaker DeLeo, rolled out. Uh, this week in response to the governor's revised plan. It's actually higher spending uh, than recommended by Governor Baker by about $188 million. But uh, like Governor Baker, House leaders have chosen to avoid uh, trying to pursue new tax hikes to offset a pretty steep drop in state revenues that they're anticipating uh, due to the pandemic. They're now projecting, uh, like the governor, about having about $2 billion uh, less than they did in fiscal uh, 2020 uh, to cover this spending. So uh, to make up the difference, uh, like the governor, they're using uh, a lot of one-time revenue from the federal government and also tapping into the state's uh, $3.5 billion reserve fund uh, for about one and a half Billion dollars, uh, and that's how uh, they're going to do the math uh, to 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 cover the 46 billion in spending that they're proposing, which includes some bumps uh, from the governor's uh, draft in areas like education, uh, substance abuse prevention, uh, environmental protection, uh, as well as uh, housing and food security.
0: Now here we are, more than four months into fiscal 2021, which this general budget would be for Uh, today friday as uh shortly before we started taping this podcast uh the house and senate worked together on some rare friday afternoon sessions to finally close the books on last fiscal year uh with a a final supplemental budget to pay some outstanding bills so uh on tuesday they'll just have fiscal 2021 to look ahead to um, Now, Matt, the speaker has indicated that they don't want to deal with any huge policy matters in this budget. And normally we would see some policy items tacked on, right?
1: Normally you would in a budget process. I mean, maybe mercifully for us, I got to tell you, Sam, I was really looking forward to taking that breather that we usually get after a big election cycle like this instead Uh, because of the pandemic we're plunging into what feels like uh, another end of session flurry of activity in the legislature starting with uh, this budget process. And yeah, you're right, Uh, normally the budget is a vehicle that lawmakers would try to attach uh, policy sections, earmarks and spending. The Speaker, uh, the Chairman Ways and Means really trying to send a message this week publicly uh, and uh, you know, in calls where they've laid this budget out for members to try and tamp down some of that activity. I think they wanna keep this fairly simple. Chairman Michalowicz talked about talking uh, with his counterpart over in the Senate, Senator Michael Rodrigues, uh and uh, agreeing largely to a framework uh, was the word he used for this budget and trying to keep some of the more uh, controversial pieces perhaps out of this so they can move it along quickly. Uh, the speaker said that he would like to get this done by the end of the month. The governor said Thanksgiving. Uh, the speaker said, yeah, that would be great, uh, you know, but maybe more realistically by the end of November, if not shortly thereafter. And by any stretch, that would be a very aggressive timetable in any year. Usually, this process plays out from April to May, then it goes into negotiations with the Senate. Uh, it spills over into July, so that's usually a four plus month process. Uh, they're trying to do it now uh, perhaps in a matter of weeks and they're doing it that quickly, or at least trying to because they wanna quickly turn their attention to FY22, which uh, doesn't start until July 1st, but it's gonna be equally challenging. The governor will uh, put out a, a new uh, budget for FY2022 in, uh, in January and they'll start the process all over again and so they really wanna start thinking about that and get uh, budget done and in the books, especially since it's only gonna cover spending uh, for about the the next, you know, by the time they get it done, maybe only six months, uh, given that the state's been operating on interim budgets since July.
0: Yeah, now Matt, when you mentioned them not getting into uh, big policy areas in the budget, one policy area that we might still see some action on in the chambers, uh, before the end of 2020 would be the so-called Roe Act, uh, expanding abortion access in Massachusetts. Uh, apparently not as part of the budget, but we saw statements from uh, Speaker DeLeo and Senate President Spilka earlier this week saying that they're committing to debating that issue in the chambers. Um this session chris there's a, a big deadline coming up next week for action on that bill right
3: that's right the the row act um which we should Backup is a, a bill expanding access to abortion in a bunch of different ways, um, has been sitting before the Judiciary Committee since last year. It has a majority of co-sponsors from either branch, hasn't moved out of the committee. Right now, they face a November 12th deadline to decide what to do with it. Of course, it being the legislature, they could always extend that deadline for themselves, but we do have some indication from top Democrats that whether it's the Roe Act, a rewritten version of the Roe Act, or some other reproductive health care bill, they want to tackle that topic before the session is, is over, which, you know, we should really underline is is exceedingly rare for them to do this time of year, this uh, close to, to seeding a new legislature.
0: Well, right, since this is the first duck session in 26 years, as many years as I've been alive, I would point out, um, uh, since they held that final uh, post-election formal session in December of 94. uh, And heading into this one, they said, we don't want to get into any any policy areas like that. We're going to really try to stick to just the budget uh, COVID response bills, and reports of conference committees, which we've still got five up on our whiteboard <laughs> yeah. there, police reform, climate change, healthcare, transportation bond bill, and economic development. So uh, just some
3: minor topics,
0: just just a few. So Lisinski, what changed to, um, to make them kind of reverse course there and say, well, no, here, th- there is this other big policy issue that we do want to tackle uh, before the year is out. Yeah, they haven't
3: said so, but I think that we just have to assume at this point, it's pretty clear that the successful nomination and confirmation of uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court really set all of this off. Um, You know, Democrats have been looking at her as a a possible linchpin in a Republican fight against Roe v. Wade precedent. Um, So I think there's a lot of worries going around Democratic circles that uh, the Supreme Court could change the status of reproductive health care rights in America, and that at the state level, Democratic legislatures need to do something now to enshrine those protections.
2: Um, I think it, it's interesting too, Sam, you point out um, kind of the there was an idea of a limited scope for the extended formal sessions. Um, but we're also just approaching str- the straight end of term is inching closer. and that's when we start to see more and more kind of issue bills move in informal sessions, things that aren't like the land bills, the liquor licenses. You know, we, we see the legislature really get active as the, as the clock is running out. I think of last session when New Year's Eve and New Year's Day was devoted in large part to getting the um, flame retardants bill through the legislature and onto the governor's desk. We saw that, a version of that bill um, moving this week. So I think we are going to start to see, um, now that we're on the other side of the cycle of the election, excuse me, um more just more activity in the legislature in in general
0: all right well as you said earlier katie it is still tuesday and and so it shall be perhaps into the weekend um uh wow what a week what a week and it's really got that flavor of july even though we've already had our first snowfall and the leaves are falling down uh Hey, we're going to have some warm weather this weekend. It's going to be over 70, so it'll kind of feel like July. As we get policy bills moving, we get the budget going. Um, it's, it's almost as if we get a do-over on 2020 when you think about it. Um, folks, get some rest this weekend, and we'll be back at it again next week.
2: Statehouse Takeout is a
1: production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit Masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.